Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. opportunity, Lord, just to to serve you, to to gather together as a body of believers, uh, to sing praises to your name, Lord, just to to consider your glory and your beauty and your power and your majesty, Father. We we thank you for this church, for the heart of this church, people that are willing to serve and go and sacrifice, Father, and, and I pray that you would be honored today as we gather again and study your word, Lord. I pray you'd open the eyes, uh, Lord, of our mind, of our heart just to see and hear and understand and perceive your will in our lives. Father, challenge us to be more, to do more, to love more, Lord, in all areas of our life, Lord. Just uh, be with us today. Lord, I pray through the power of the Spirit, as we do every Sunday morning, we'd be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I want to thank Jeremy for filling in for me last week. He always does a really good job. I was able to finally listen to the podcast last night. I tried all week, but I couldn't get it to load properly where I was. I was in Guatemala all week, as many of you probably know, with our team. And fantastic trip. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a few minutes. Uh, Neat what the Lord's doing down there. Need how the Lord uses our team every time we go. Uh, but exciting things are coming up these next few weeks. Obviously, Easter's in two weeks. I hope you've made preparations to be with us and have invited friends and family and, and maybe people that you work with to be with us and celebrate here on our campus. And then next Sunday morning will be our first Sunday in the new worship center, which I'm very excited about. Uh, we've been in this room now for about 10 months. And, and some days it feels like we've been here 10 years. And <laughs> Some days it feels like we've been here 10 minutes. It's kind of weird how it works. But here we are now. We've, we've just about completed everything. All the major work is done. Just small little items that we've noticed now uh, are being fixed and, and, and finished. And lights are being checked out and all the things we have to do this week. And so you be in prayer that this week would go smoothly for us as we move in. But next Sunday we'll start in there. So you guys can come in there. 8.30 beginning uh, next Sunday morning. Of course our Easter services are 8. Just different times. 8. 9.30 and 11 for Easter only, and then we'll be back to our normal 8.30 service times. We're excited this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited about this particular Sunday morning. This is one I've kind of been looking forward to and, and really thinking about and, and really alluding to over the last many weeks because it really marks kind of a turning point, a change in the ministry of Christ, a change kind of in his direction of what he's trying to accomplish uh, and, and really, more importantly, a change in the understanding of the people that are following him. 
they're going to begin to see with, with a lot more clarity this morning in this text exactly why Jesus is here. There's been a lot of confusion up to this point. We're going to kind of think through this together. Jesus has done a lot of good things, a lot of miraculous things. He's fed people. Last week, he walked on the water. So, so incredible things have happened. But this morning, there's going to be clarity. We're going to see really for the first time in the gospel, Jesus, and, and, and Mark is very clear about this, Mark speaks plainly to them, the word of God says. There's no doubt. No confusion from this point forward what Jesus is going to do, what he's going to have to accomplish, and, and really for us, the application, what that will require of us, right? And so I'm going to do something I haven't done up to this point in our sermon series. I'm going to kind of fast forward just a little bit. I'm going to kind of just summarize about a chapter and a half to kind of get us up to where we need to be this morning. Jeremy, of course, last week finished up with Jesus walking on the water. The end of Mark chapter 6, just an incredible story of the power and the glory of Christ. Again, working through the hearts and, and the, the, the lives of his disciples to do that. I'm going to summarize kind of chapter 7 and, and part of chapter 8. Jesus is, is in chapter 7 is still going to be challenged by the religious leaders. There's this kind of pressure point that's growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. Eventually, we know what's going to happen there as he goes to Jerusalem. So they continue to question him, continue to challenge him, continue to ask him these sort of ridiculous questions. And if you read it, we're not going to do it this morning, but if you were to read through it, kind of, it almost seems as if Jesus is frustrated with him. Like, you can continue to ask these questions. You continue to, to wonder. You continue to question. You continue to kind of go down these paths. And I just often wonder, as, as I read those sorts of accounts, how Jesus views me. Sometimes when I question and wonder, and maybe my faith isn't where it should be. But Jesus is going to continue to talk with these religious leaders. He's going to continue to cast out demons. He's going to heal a deaf man. He's going to feed 4,000 people in the beginning of chapter 8. And yes, I believe those are two separate accounts. Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, two different accounts. He's going to heal a blind man. And then we're going to kind of settle out this morning in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Because I want you to, to see this morning... The change occur in the way that Jesus, Jesus communicates and explains and how his disciples understand. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which would have been to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And this is fascinating to me, and I don't want to spend a lot of time doing this, but Jesus basically... And, and there's a little bit of wiggle room here and a little bit of gray room in, in kind of the four Gospels. But this is one of, if not the northernmost point Jesus would have been in all of his ministry. Caesarea Philippi is a good bit north. Jerusalem is a good bit south. It's almost as if Jesus uh, walks kind of as far away from Jerusalem as he's ever been at this point. And then the remainder of his life, as we're going to see over the next several weeks, is his journey back south to Jerusalem. So he's in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? It's the first time he's asked this question. Like there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of question. Who, who are people saying that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, and this is the question, by the way, that not only did Peter have to answer, but every person in the history of the world will one day have to answer, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Hmm. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. I want you to see the first truth in this scripture. I want you to understand kind of what's going on here. The first thing we see, number one, is Jesus is going to give his purpose for coming to the earth. This is important. Because up until this point, we've seen miraculous things, We've seen great crowds. We've seen excitement. We've seen feeding of 5,000. We've seen walking on the water. All of these incredible things have happened. And yet in the, in the midst of these things, and I, I, again, I try to just put myself in the place of these followers, but it's been always so strange to me to wonder how these people, even in the midst of these miracles and the incredible things that Jesus has done, how they could still wonder who he is how they could still be confused. But at this point, if confusion has kind of reigned in their hearts, at this point things are going to begin to change because the Bible is going to tell us that the primary reason Jesus came to earth was not to do miracles. Now those were important. And by the way, just a a little side note, there are people that say Jesus came to the earth to love people and to kind of do social justice to do nice things for people, to feed people, to clothe people. All those things are right. He did all those things. But that's not the primary reason he came. He didn't come just because he was a great teacher. That was part of it, but that wasn't the primary reason he came. He didn't just come to train his disciples. That was part of why he came, but it wasn't the primary reason. Verse 31 begins to clue us in on exactly what Jesus is here for and why he's come to this earth. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Not an easy thing for him to say or for the disciples to hear. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then be killed and after three days rise again. It's interesting to me in this, this whole context, this whole discussion, we're going to see this with Peter here in just a minute, is Peter kind of hears the bad and not the good. Jesus uses words like rejection, suffer, killed, and then he kind of tags on the end, and I'm going to rise again, but Peter doesn't hear any of that. <laughs> That's always been interesting to me. We're kind of the same way, aren't we? You, you kind of hear uh, somebody talking about something, and you hear the bad sometimes before you hear the good, or you hear the startling before you hear kind of the main idea. But Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be rejected and killed. I'm, I'm going to rise again. And from this moment on, this is a real, really a turning point in the gospel of Mark. Everything is going to change. One writer says it like this. For Jesus, his declaration of the cross was a turning point in his ministry. Once he set his face toward the cross, nothing Not the pleas of a beloved disciple or the dread of the process could stop him. Jesus has kind of made it clear to his disciples, listen, I've come here to walk to Jerusalem, to willingly give my life, to be killed, and three days later to rise again. But here's the question, why? Like, Why did he have to do this? Was there another way? I've kind of thought before, and I want to walk through this to kind of answer this question, but I've kind of wondered before, you know, what if Jesus had had another 30 years on this earth? What could he have accomplished? If God had said, you know, I'm going to let you have a ministry of 33 years instead of just, right, he's about 30 years old when the ministry starts, roughly three years of ministry, then he's crucified. What if God had said, listen, I'm going to let you live for 30 years before you start ministry, then another 30 years after that? Why does he have to go through this process? Like, why does he have to die 
Why does he have to work through all this difficulty and the struggle and all the things that we know are going to happen to him? Why does he have to do these things in order for the Lord to be pleased? Well, I want to kind of walk through that because this is an important theological distinction. There's some doctrine in here that you need to understand. And, and I, I get it when I preach to this group. You guys could probably stand here and do a better job of teaching this than I could. But it's good to be reminded sometimes. Because the world has a lot of different ideas about Jesus. The world has a lot of different ideas about why he came. The world has a lot of different teachings and oftentimes false uh, uh, understanding of what he accomplished. And so it's good for us to remember and be reminded of his primary purpose, of why he came, of why he had to suffer. So I'm going to give you a few verses. I'm going to walk through some scripture. You don't have to look it up if you don't want to. You can jot it down and look at it later. I want you to listen to it, though. A few scriptures that clue us in on what Christ is doing here. Luke 24, 25 and 26 say, say this. He said to them, How foolish are you and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? Right. So there's other scripture that... Remind us this idea of, of suffering. Isaiah chapter 53, which I've preached before and I believe is, is, in my opinion, the greatest Old Testament prophecy looking ahead to Messiah, says this in verse 10. This is important. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Right? We, we get this biblical understanding that not only did Jesus come to the earth, not only did he willingly walk to Calvary, not only did he give his life, not only did he suffer during that process, and we all understand it's kind of the physical suffering that he endured, or, or maybe we don't understand it, at least we can we can. We can reason in our mind what he must have gone through. But we see not only did he suffer, but we see that it was the Lord's will that this happened. It was the Lord's will that he had to suffer and that he had to die. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was, it was the Lord's will that Jesus suffer, that Jesus die, that Jesus take our place on the cross. And so when the Lord looks at us now, and this is important, when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see our sin that we've committed. He sees the blood of Christ that covers that sin, and we are righteous in his eyes, not because of what we've accomplished, not because of what we've done, but because the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. Do you understand that? That comes only because Jesus willingly walked to the cross. We miss this. I miss it. I miss it so much. I just sometimes blow right through this and forget that Christ died on the cross. So that all my sin and all the, the foolishness and the wickedness and the, the, the dumb things that I do and have done and will do will be cut. When the Lord looks at me in heaven one day, it's the righteousness of the blood of Christ. Here's the most maybe incredible part about it. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus did this on his own accord. That's what scripture teaches. Now, he didn't have to allow the priests to do this, right? He was the, the king of kings and the Lord of the Lord. He could have called a legion of angels to rescue him from the cross. 
And, and yet scripture teaches us, John 10, 18, says that no one takes the life of Christ from him. He says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again, right? It's the beauty of the love of Christ, the holiness of God in our lives, the, the wickedness of sin, because we know that God is love. We, we get that, John 3, 16. But the Bible also teaches that God is just and sin has to be repaid. One of the things that I love about reading through portions of the Old Testament, I think sometimes we don't see this when we read the New Testament because we just think about the blood of Christ covering our sins. But when you read through the Old Testament, you understand clearly, especially you get into the, the part of the, the people of, of Egypt, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and, and into the wilderness and the laws the Lord gave them and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Sin had to be forgiven through the death of the blood of an animal. We see that over and over in Scripture. This is a theme that you read about time and time and time. Again, an animal had to be sacrificed. That blood covered the sin. So there's this picture in the Old Testament that the Lord has to punish sin. And if we're not the ones because of our own failures are going to be punished because of the sin, someone has got to take a place. That's what Scripture teaches about Jesus. He came, died on the cross, so our sins can be forgiven. Now let's continue. I want you to notice what happens here. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of the glory of Christ. So he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. And that's interesting. Peter doesn't say, you're going to rise again? Peter instead rebukes him. Right? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning. We, we, we see this purpose of why Jesus came. We see his grace and his love and his mercy. But truth number two, we see Jesus' obedience to the Father. This is an important idea for us. Right? We see not only what he came to accomplish, we see his purpose for coming, but we see his obedience. I want you to notice verse 32. Verse 32 is very clear. It says, and he said this plainly, right? No question, no doubt. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to act like it's something that's not. He's just very plainly, very clearly explaining this to his followers. And the Bible tells us that Peter rebuked him. And I've always kind of laughed at that because I just can't imagine what it must have been like for Peter to rebuke Jesus. Now, we know about Peter. Many of you have probably studied Peter and there's a lot of things we could say about Peter, but oftentimes one of the things we learn about Peter, he kind of rushes to judgment. He speaks before he thinks. He puts his foot in his mouth a lot of times, right? And that resonates with a lot of us because sometimes we feel like that. That's kind of sometimes the way we act, right? And it's, it's always been a, a really neat thing to see how the Lord loved Peter and, and took Peter in, even though he acted the way that many of us act in a, kind of a silly, uh, a sinful way. But Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him, and he says, listen, this isn't going to happen to you. We're not going to allow them to take you, to, to hurt you, to kill you. Not going to happen. Now, here's what Peter's thinking. Peter's thinking, these last few years have been incredible. <laughs> like, I've been, I've been walking with you, Jesus, and I've seen miraculous things. I've seen people healed. I've seen you walk on water. I've seen you calm storms. I've seen you turn uh, just a, a few pieces of bread and a few fish into enough to feed thirty or 40,000 people. I don't want this to end. I'm not going to let this happen, Jesus. I'm not going to let them take you and kill you. I don't want this to be over. That's what Peter's thinking. You know, I just got back from 
Guatemala, and, and several of you asked me this morning about our trip, and it was fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, we, just, just to, this is not a sermon about Guatemala, and I have to, every time I come back from mission trip, I have to kind of dial it down because I could talk for two hours probably up here about what happened in Guatemala. And I'll tell these stories over the next few weeks because I want you to hear about them. And I want you to be challenged. Some of you have gone and will go and are involved in ministry here that's similar to what we do there. But, but we do all kind of great stuff in Guatemala. Medical clinics, evangelism, a kids club. Man, I went on evangelism a couple different times. And you, you, you walk through the jungles and you kind of walk into these, these huts. And I've described them before, but they're just bamboo walls, a tin roof, and dirt. That's it. And it's, you know, 15 by 15 maybe if they're lucky. No amenities, usually no electricity, no running water, none of those kinds of things. But we go in those places and we, we share the gospel with these people. And I've kind of come to this conclusion. I used to think that because there's such an a, a influence of the Catholic Church in that area, that it would have been a good thing for those people because they've got a basis at least in who Christ is and a basis in the idea of, of, of God and so on and so forth. But the problem is they're so confused oftentimes. They've kind of mixed animism and Catholicism and some of their own views. They're so confused that it's hard to get to the truth. And so many of them believe, listen, if I just go to church, if I just do good things, one day I hope that it's enough. We hear that over and over and over again. We try to share the gospel with them and tell them, listen, this is not the answer. Church, going to church, doing good works, none of the things will save you. So we get to share Christ with these people. We did, we, we did kids' clubs, and hundreds of kids come. We get to teach in the public schools. We get to walk into the school, and without reservation, without having to hide it in some sort of a moral story, we just preach Christ. You believe that? In fact, the headmaster told us, we love you. He said that to us through a translator. We love you. We want you to come back at any time. You can, do, you can say or do anything you want to do to these kids. Every time you come back, we'd love to have you. And so we just share the gospel. We don't, we, don't, we don't hide it. We do an invitation. We go in those rooms, and we teach them stories of Christ. And at the end of those stories, every day, we do an invitation in a classroom with these kids. It's just this incredible work of the Spirit, incredible work of the Lord. Juan, I've mentioned Juan to you several times. I've, I've used him as an example, an illustration. He's the young man that was chained. Some of you have been praying about him and aware for years and years he was literally chained to the porch of his house because he was hurting other people. We believed from the beginning it was demonic influence. We've prayed over him as a team. We've prayed over him as, as individuals. People from this church have prayed over him. Fervent prayer now for several years for Juan. Juan is free now. He's free. In fact, you know, the, you know how the Lord. You know how the Lord sometimes just does these cool little things. He just reminds you of his of his glory. Like we drove in the very the very first day, and. There's kind of this bridge that you kind of go over, you cross the river. And once you cross the river, you're kind of in the area of San Juan Moca. You know, it's kind of hard to distinguish because it's just a, I mean, it's just a, a dirt road through the jungle. So it's not like there's welcome to San Juan Moca, city limits here, nothing like that. But once you go over the river, you're kind of in that area. And we're driving, and, and we cross over that bridge, and standing on that bridge was Juan. Standing there. And our whole team just kind of erupted, like, there he is. It's like the Lord was just saying, you know, all your prayers have been answered. He's free. I'm telling you, we saw him six times, five or six times the rest of the week, just various, all around, different parts outside of that village, different parts of the road, just walking, just in his freedom. But here's the point. Here's, here's again, <laughs> let me rein this in. I could talk for hours about this. Here's the point, right? I didn't want this to end. I didn't want to leave. 
But I love you, and I love this church, and I love what God is doing here. But, man, I wanted to, I had my whole family with me. My wife was with me. I had four children with me. They had a fantastic week. I could have stayed. But it's not my calling to stay. God's called me here. Come do what I do, and, and I, I love this church. But I didn't, I didn't want that ministry to end. That's how Peter feels. Like, Peter's in the midst of just this incredible, miraculous life he's been leading now for the last two and a half to three years. Jesus has done all this crazy stuff. People are coming, they're hearing, they're learning. Things are changing. Peter's heart is softening. He's learning about who Christ is. He doesn't want it to end, but here's the problem, right? This is the problem so many of us have on so many different levels. Peter was looking at this from an earthly standpoint, not an eternal standpoint. Peter had an earthly perspective. Christ had an eternal perspective. And one of the worst things we can do as believers is to get mired in an earthly perspective of life. Did you know that? You want to short circuit what the Lord's doing in your life? Get an earthly perspective of what's going on. Christ said, listen, you don't really know what's going on here, Peter. You're thinking temporally. You're, th you're thinking just short term here. You're thinking just the next couple of years. I'm thinking eternally, Christ says. You need to get behind me because i got more stuff in store than you can ever imagine. Now, if it ended there, it would be a really cool story, right? And we can all feel good about it. I mean, the purpose of why Christ came, he came to die on the cross for our sins. He loved us so much. He's going to leave these disciples behind. He's trained them already. He's going to give them the power of the Spirit, which we know about. We studied through Acts. If we were to stop it here, it, it'd be kind of easy for us. But here's the, here's the, I don't even know what word I would use. Here's the point. I almost said the nail in the coffin. That's probably not a good way to say it. Here's the application that makes it difficult for us. Right? Up to this point, it's kind of, it's good. Man, we love it. We see the glory and the beauty. And all. But here's where it gets challenging, right? Here's where the rubber meets the road. Let's look at it again. Look at verse 34. And so calling the crowd to him, and I'm going to talk about this in just a second. He didn't just call one or two people. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Very simply, Jesus calling to his followers. Right? We've seen his purpose. We've seen why he's come We've seen his obedience, right, to follow the Lord, to have the eternal perspective even when others around him don't. Now we're going to see there's this clear calling he places upon his followers. I want you to look at verse 34. This ought to really just kind of stand out to you. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples. Right, this is everybody. Like it's easy for us sometimes to kind of rationalize maybe somebody else ought to be doing something. You ever notice, you know, it's kind of easy in my life, maybe it is for you. You ever notice how it's so easy to see everybody else's faults and never your own? You ever notice that? Is it like that with you too? I mean, you see other people and you're like, I can't believe they did that. Not easy to see your own faults sometimes. Right? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not just talking to this other guy over here. I'm not just talking to your spouse. 
or to your friend. or any, I'm not talking to the person in the pew behind you or beside you or in front of you. I'm talking to you. He calls the crowd. He calls his disciples. This message is for everyone. You understand that? And then he tells them, listen, if you're going to be my followers, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Right? There's this progression. Deny self, take up cross, follow me. That's what Jesus says. We, we move from this. This is important. This is kind of the change we begin to see now in the followers of Jesus. We're moving from this kind of idea of, of low commitment where people just kind of followed Jesus because he was doing cool things. There's this idea of low commitment. He's just giving me some good stuff, so I'm following him. It's some pretty cool teaching. He's feeding me every now and then. He's healing people. This idea of the following of low commitment, this place of low commitment, to this place of total commitment. Now, now this is what we're going to see over the next many weeks. The numbers of people that follow Jesus are going to begin to drop off. Because <laughs> it's very easy to follow him when he's doing everything you want, right? It's kind of easy to follow Jesus when he gives you everything you need. Kind of easy to follow Jesus when things are going the way you want them to go. But when Jesus begins to challenge these people, and we can kind of even, even apply this to our lives, when Jesus begins to challenge us, sometimes it becomes more difficult. Like I, I, I've said this before, but I have this great fear that the American church specifically, and, and maybe the, the Western church generally, but I have this great fear that the American church is filled with people of kind of low commitment. They're just willing to follow Jesus as long as things are good. But when struggles arise and something's actually required of them, they're going to kind of fall away like the people that followed Jesus at that point did. This idea of total commitment, of giving up your life, of denying yourself, of sacrificing everything you have for Christ is an unknown idea for far too many believers. That's my fear. And so as we read this and we start asking ourselves the question, listen, am, am I really willing to deny myself? A am I really willing to take up my cross? So let me just kind of define this just so you're clear. I want to define this idea of denying yourself. This is what one scholar said about it. He said to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It's to replace the self with God and Christ as the object of our affections. It's to place the divine will before self-will. Interesting, isn't it? Now, here's the analogy Jesus uses. It's kind of lost on us, but I want to make sure we understand it. Jesus says to them, listen, you've got to deny yourself, right? Take away your selfish desires. Be filled with what the Lord wants you to do. You've got to take up your cross. Now, that's a hard thing for us to understand, isn't it? Like we did these crosses down there in Guatemala for one of the activities we did in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the schools with these kids. And we went down there with wooden crosses. And they were probably that tall and that big. And they were, they were wide crosses, so kind of thick, you know. And the idea was the kids were going to put their fingerprints on them and, and do little designs and then keep them in the classroom. Right? We think about the cross for us, and it's kind of like that. We use it to be reminded of Christ, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We use it as illustrations. We use it in this classroom for these kids to be reminded of the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ, and his saving knowledge of who Christ, the saving knowledge of who Christ is in their life. So we use these really cool crosses. The kids painted them and left them down there. That's what the cross means for us. But for the first century believer, the cross was death. 
Like the best way I can explain this, and I, I've used this illustration before, but it always helps me, and I know this is a little antiquated even in the world we're living in, but it would almost be like wearing, you know how we wear crosses around our neck? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not, I'm not preaching against cross necklaces. So don't go home and throw them away. They're fine. But it would almost like us be wearing an electric chair around our neck. Like that's bizarre to us, isn't it? Why would you wear an electric chair around your neck? Well, because it's a symbol of death. Like to the first century person, when Christ said, you need to take up your cross, that person understood, listen, he's asking me to die for him. <laughs> he's asking me to give up everything for him. Right? It's not just a difficult day or some sort of a challenge I'm in or a sickness or a bad relationship. We talk about taking up our cross, and some of the, sometimes those things can fall under that category of taking up our cross. But what that ultimately means for us is we've got to be willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus. Everything. Not just a little bit here and a little bit there when it's convenient to us. We've got to be willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus, giving up everything for him. And that means a lot of things for a lot of people. And I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend to act like I know what it means for you. I'm, I'm still figuring out what it means for me, frankly. But part of our challenge as believers is figuring out exactly what Christ is calling us to do and then do it. Not allowing the things in the world to stand in our way. Not saying it's going to be too difficult or I'm going to have to give up this or people are not going to like me or I'm going to do whatever it means for you to follow Christ. We need to be willing to say I'm going to give up all those things. I mean, for, for some people it may be getting on a plane. It may be selling everything you own moving to a foreign country. Maybe that's for you. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe for you it's simply walking across the street and loving somebody in the name of Christ. I don't know what it is for you. I have no idea, but I know the calling is clear, not just for you, but also for me. we got to be willing, whatever it takes, to follow Christ and to do everything he's called us to do. And then he kind of finishes out. We need to wind this up. He kind of finishes out with this idea in verse 36. Look, pull, pull verse 36 up if you want. I want you to see this, right, because it's so clear what Jesus says here. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? You gain the world, man. There are all sorts of things you can gain while you're on this earth. And this is interesting to me because this is spoken by a man who could have gained the whole world if he wanted it. You understand that? Jesus says, listen, what, what does it gain you to get the whole world and to forfeit your soul? Again, there's the eternal perspective. We get mired in the earthly temporal. God says, listen, it's all about eternal decisions. It's all about trusting Christ. It's all about following him regardless of the consequence, regardless of what it takes to the ends of the earth. Taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following him, gaining not the whole world, but instead an eternal opportunity to spend our, the rest of eternity with Christ. Now, I, I want to end this morning. I, I've, I've got to finish. I want to end with a quote. I love quoting missionaries and thinking about missionaries because we think about what we give up. Sometimes we think about suffering. We think about having to give things up for Christ. Like I, I go to Guatemala, and, and, and I do this multiple places. It's not just Guatemala, but I always come back. In fact, I had a conversation walking down a hill uh, with somebody this week. We were in the jungle doing work. I think we'd done evangelism. We are walking back down towards the church. And the comment I made to that person was we started talking about the grace of God because I always come back. I always come back just reminded again about the grace of God because I had no choice as to where I was born. I had no choice in, in anything about my abilities or my intelligence or the color of my skin 
or the country. I didn't have any choice in any of that. And had I been born in San Juan Moca, Guatemala, I would have been just like one of those guys. I firmly believe that. Because I'm telling you, they're smart, they're hard workers, they just don't have the opportunities we have. And so I always come back thinking about the grace of God and, and thinking about the sacrifice sometimes that people make. And I'm always reminded of missionaries and what missionaries gave. And one of my favorites is David Livingston, who's a missionary in Africa, spent years just traveling through the interior part of Africa, mapping it, exploring it, sharing the gospel. Uh, David Livingston, there's a huge statue of David Livingston at, at, at the falls there in Zambia. David Livingston is buried in England, but his heart literally remained in Zambia. Because that's the country he loved. That's the place that he loved. I want to read a quote from David Livingston who gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. He says, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which, which brings its own blessed reward in helpful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of the glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word and such of you. And with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, Suffering or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this one be for just a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture of Christ in this text. It's a beautiful picture of his glory, of his purpose, of what he came on this earth to do. But it's a reminder, it's a challenge, it's a calling. Are we willing to forsake all things in service to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity Again, just to study your word, Lord, for, for the opportunity to, to understand who you are, to be challenged in our faith. Lord, I pray you would just speak to us through this text, Lord. Just, just allow it just to resonate in our hearts, to challenge us again, to be aware of your truth and your calling in our lives, Father. Allow us just to trust you more, to grow more, to be willing to give up more for your sake, Father. Use us to do great things for your kingdom. And we'll praise your name for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altar is open, an opportunity for you to come. You can respond. You can join our church. You can accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your time to respond as we sing together this morning. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. 
Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.